What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to episode number 29 of RizzoCast. We've made it this far. Uh, super excited. Uh, and also super excited to have on longtime sports columnist and reporter. He's worked at Forbes, MLB.com, et cetera, et cetera. And current senior writer for Sportico, which is a new baseball business site, uh, rather new. It's Barry Bloom. Barry Bloom, thanks for joining the show. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate it. Um, obviously, we're in the midst of the holiday season. We're recording this a few days before Christmas, uh, which is, I, I understand that that's a pretty big, um, it's crazy that you're joining me here a few days before Christmas, because not a lot of people would take that time. So I appreciate that. Um, so do you have any plans for this year? I know it's kind of COVID-ish, COVID-related. There's not a lot going on. A lot of people can't travel. What's going on with your uh, Christmas this year? Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, it's perfectly situated for the time of COVID that um, I'm home this week doing some work, doing basically what I've been doing for the last nine months. You know, I can't see my grand, go to New York to see my grandson there. Can't go to L.A. to see my grandson there. You know, we've done a couple of trips to L.A., uh, you know, before this thing blew up. And, uh, and I went out to cover the uh, the playoffs in the World Series before this thing blew up. So. That's been my my only outings. So I'm wide open here with a home for the holidays with my wife and, and another friend. So is all the shopping done? Are you done? What's the progress like for your, your shopping this time of year? Oh, most of it's done. And, you know, with Amazon and everything, you just – Costco, you just buy it, ship it out all over the country, send out your cards, do e-cards to some people. You know, so I, we're pretty much caught up. Uh, even our shopping for cooking for Christmas is about done. Yeah, it's it's so easy nowadays. You can just uh, click a button and boom, you have something on your doorstep. So the reason I wanted to have you on today was because you're a registered Hall of Fame voter um, that released your ballot already. We'll get to that in a second. I love this time of year. Um, do you feel the same? Is this kind of a, a great time of year for you in terms of you know discussions healthy debates what does this time of year mean to you well normally i mean i i always love uh you know the post baseball season after the world series you know you you know you've worked your, your butt off covered 100 to 150 regular season games 20 30 spring training games a lot of the playoffs in the world series and then you get to the general managers meetings, the winter meetings, the world, you know, the ballot for the hall of fame, the, then the announcement, you know, there's really always something going and then you get to the super bowl. And when that's over, you're in spring training. You know, this year, a lot of it's been virtual. You know, we just finished uh, a week last week where MLB was kind enough to set up all the managers who we'd see live at the winter meetings in zoom sessions. So all 30 were, were available for half an hour plus at some point. And I sat in on a lot of those sessions and, you know, that, you know, that was fun. I mean, it just sort of changes the whole dynamic of things this year. I mean, this is like the first year I can, I can remember no all-star game. I didn't go to opening day. There was no, uh, you know, induction ceremony up in Cooperstown, which I commonly go to, you know, that's all been put off till 2021 even if then as you know because we're looking at i just wrote a story about the nhl talking about starting their season on january 13th with four divisions one of them all canadian and then i don't even know at this point whether they're going to be playing in home cities even though that's the plan or they're going to really be playing in hubs but i think it's pretty clear that because of the COVID situation in canada those teams are not going to be all seven Canadian teams are not going to be playing in Canada because they can't even travel from province to province right now in Canada. And so you have in basketball, you had Toronto, you have Toronto playing down in Tampa In hockey and baseball, you had the blue Jays playing in Buffalo. And that's something they have to figure out, but, but you know, between now and the start of the season, there's just so much. I mean, really uh, to tell you the truth from the major league level to the minor league level, I've never seen baseball in so much tumult as they are right now. In all the years, and I've covered the sport for 45 years, I covered the strike in 81, the strike in 94, 
every labor agreement, all the the Capitol Hill, you know, hearings on the steroid situation. It, it was just one. It's been one thing after another, but never anything like this, where there really is no agreement. Oh, do we lose Barry? Oh, are you still there? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah I can. I, now I can hear you. Okay, great. I'll cut that part out. That's no problem. Yeah. So obviously, you know, baseball you mentioned is in such maybe, I don't know if turmoil would be the right word, but you wrote a, you recently wrote an article about the minor league situation is it tough to see some of those affiliates leave? I mean, you know, it, it's really important for, for those local economies, especially, you know, if we're talking about growing the game. The, you know, fans, there's a lot of fans that don't have driving distance or don't have ballparks that are driving distance from them that are at the major league level. So these minor league teams are all they have. Is it is it a sense of sadness? You know, I know baseball's doing this for nothing other than economic reasons. What is the feeling right now in, in the game when it comes to these minor league affiliates leaving or getting, you know, no longer getting disowned, really? Well, I, I, you know, I think obviously at the minor league level, there's a lot of sadness. At the major league level, to a certain extent, I kind of understand it that, um, you know, when you look at the numbers, uh, something like, 18%, if not less, of, of all drafted players ever make it to the major leagues. You know, 12% or less for any protracted period of time. And, and maybe 3% of those are impact players. So you're, you're spending a lot of money at a lot of levels to build teams with players who are never going to play in the major leagues. You know, it's like a huge funnel. And even when my kid was little and we, he used to play youth ball decades ago down in San Diego, and he really said, he, he, you know, he had his ambitions to be in the major leagues. And I, and I was covering the Padres or something down in San Diego for the Union Tribune. You know, I, I would just be in a situation where I would try to explain to him that, you know, so many people want to play baseball. So many people you know, are lucky enough to get a minor league contract. And only a small amount of those players who even get a minor league contract get to the major leagues. So I think there needed to be some sort of, uh, you know, reshuffling of the minor league system. But I don't think it needed to be done with the heavy-handed way that Major League Baseball has handled it, where, the, you know, they eliminated 40 teams. And then the 120 that they have left for per Major League team, they're now telling them, this is the deal that you have to sign for 10 years, take it or leave it. And you have to sign away all your liability. And if we don't have a season this year because of COVID, it's on you, not us. We don't take any any financial responsibility for it. And those are the highlights. So I, I think it could have been handled in a much different way. I also think at the major league level, with the way they handled uh, the negotiations going into the 60-game COVID season, you know, they could have handled that much better too. Instead of spending six weeks you know, floating stories through their various outlets on what they wanted the players to accept rather than even sitting down at the bargaining table and dealing with the players about it. You know, they try to create a public relations, you know, level of, of how to do things and, and, and create pressure on the players on one side, minor league owners on another, to, to take what they're handing out to them. And, you know, the, unless the minor league owners kind of unionize themselves and get a great amount of people to resist signing this agreement, putting in MLB in a situation where it has to negotiate, you know, they're going to wind up behind the eight ball for, for a decade. And in baseball, the players association is just not going to handle that. So you have now a situation where, and this is a long winded answer. You, you have a situation where the players have basically said the way you handled us this year we're not budging. We have a contract for next year. It's 162 games. We're being paid for 162 games, no matter how many you want to play. 
So now it's incumbent on Major League Baseball to figure out how they're going to play 162 games. And if they have to play a majority of them without fans in the stands and the accompanying revenue, that's their issue. It's not the player's issue. It's a short-term operational problem. Long-term for the sport, there's going to be plenty of revenue and plenty of money. I mean, I point to three things. One, during the middle of all this, Steve Cohn bought the Mets from Fred Wilpon, who paid $380 million for it for $2.42 billion. That's a lot of growth, and players don't share in any of that. Number two, the Dodgers, before even the season started, had evidently enough money to extend out Mookie Betts for $365 million. And number three, TBS extended their television contract with Major League Baseball, even under these circumstances, for $8 million over another eight years. So there's no long-term financial problem for MLB. Most of the franchises are either going to stay static or their values are going to go up. When they do get back to the ballparks full-time with fans, probably in 2022, you know, for the whole season, you know, they're going to get back to normal. They're going to have to reinstitute things and do things a little differently. Lower probably ticket prices to get fans back in who are strapped for money. But eventually, just like it did after the strike in 94, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back around. So now the question is, what's the short-term problem? How do they solve the revenue shortfalls so that they can put the game on and get their television money? And how do they keep the players happy? And to me, at some point, they've got to make a decision that the players are their product and they have to partner in the players in some shape or form. You know, last year, you know, having, you know, watched the whole season on television and then been to the 12 games in 13 days in San Diego of the AL playoffs, and then the six games in eight days in Texas for the World Series, I was amazed watching the players every day. The games were entertaining. They were played in San Diego with nobody in the stands. It didn't matter. Once the pitcher took the ball and threw the first pitch, they were into it. And you know what? The, the television money came in. The, the owners made $3 billion collecting their television money. And if the players had just mailed it in and not, uh, and not put on a good show, whatever limited ratings they, they had anyway would have felt fallen in, in, into the bucket completely. You know, so without their integrity and ethics going out and playing the game under very tough conditions for them, and I will say for them because – there are plenty of people in this world who are in a lot worse condition than the players, who would love to be in a bubble in a hotel for a couple of weeks, would love to have their food taken care of for them, know their families are safe. But I'm not taking anything away from the players. For them, it was a very difficult way to play ball. But they did it, and they did it with, you know, acumen, and they did it, you know, uh, they, they served everybody well. And now you can't come back and treat them like, you know, like dung, because if they didn't do that, you wouldn't have had a product and even collected your television money. So I'm just waiting for the light bulb to come on at some point where all the lawyers who run MLB figure this out. Yeah, that, that's really good stuff there. And as you mentioned, the players really did go along with it, even after the kind of the, 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 negotiations between the players association and major league baseball at the beginning that kind of looked a little off. And then there was an agreement made by major league baseball. So the players did a great job moving along. So moving along here, you uh, first voted for the hall of fame in 1992, Raleigh fingers and Tom Seaver, may he rest in peace were elected that year. Do you remember anything about voting for the first time? What was it like for you filling out that, that uh, piece of paper there? Oh, well, I mean, it was a thrill because, you know, the rules are that, you know, you have to be a baseball writer for 10 years consecutively, an active baseball writer for 10 years consecutively to get your ballot for the Hall of Fame. And once you got that at the time, you had it for the rest of your life. You know, now they've made a little bit of adjustments on those rules to keep the, the voting populace a little bit more current. And so when you retire... From, from, from active coverage, you have 10 years after that to continue to vote, and then your vote goes away. But for somebody like me, I mean, I'm 69, I'm still active, you know, who knows how much longer, hopefully I'll be active for another four or five years. 
So you're talking about I'll be voting into my 80s. Uh, you know, I, I might not get to Mike Trout, but I'll, I'll, but I'll be pretty close. You know, Mike Trout's about 20 years, 15 years away. If he plays a 20-year career and, uh, and then the five-year, you know, grace period before he goes in. So, yeah, I was a thrill to get my first Hall of Fame ballot. And obviously, the, the, uh, I started watching baseball when I was a little kid. My father took me to my first game at what I call the original, original Yankee Stadium. And uh, so I saw Seaver's whole career. I saw Finger's whole career. Uh, you know, so it, it was a no-brainer really voting for either of them, especially in the circumstances where you were trying to start to figure out at the time what you would do with relief pitchers in the save era. And really, Fingers was the first one to go in in the save era, even though he, he did start somewhat in his career, but he really, you know, cut his teeth as a, as a, not just a closer, but a two, three inning finisher, uh, you know, of ball games. Uh, and, and at the time, especially for the A's, for those teams that won the championship uh, in the uh, 70s, you know, he, he, he was a great pitcher, you know, and that continued well on even later in his career. You know, he pitched for, you know, other teams that were very good. So, yeah, that, that, they were a no-brainer. And the Fingers had pitched part of his career in San Diego. Uh, I was covering the Padres at the time in San Diego in 1992. It was one of my last years on the beat down there. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, just being able to file it and then go cover the induction ceremony for the first time was was really thrilling. It was a, a lot of fun. Yeah, so let's segue that into your ballot. You released it uh, at the beginning of the month. So I'm going to read off the names for those that don't know. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Todd Helton, Andy Pettit, Kurt Schilling, Gary Sheffield, Sammy Soso, Marvis Kell. Um Did I miss Manny Ramirez and Scott Rowland? I don't know. But yeah, – those are the those are the ten names you fill out all ten. Um, very respectable ballot, in my opinion. I, I've seen definitely worse. I saw somebody fill in a blank one, um, but again, you know, it's just a matter of opinion. Uh, so, what are what are some of the names that you know maybe were were difficult to vote for? You know, are you a guy that is religious on filling out all ten? How is your process? Uh, how did your process go through here in twenty twenty one for the ballot? Well, you know, look, I've been filling out my ballot for what, it's almost 30 years now. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, you know, I, I can't say that every year I, I put 10 guys on the ballot. You know, there have been some years early on, um, 15, 20 years ago, where there really wasn't enough guys on, on the ballot to, to put at, in any more than like six or seven. Um, you know, in this era, you know, since you've gotten to, you know, all the steroid guys being on the ballot, you know, from 2013 on when we didn't vote anybody in, there's been such a backup on the ballot that it's almost impossible, in my mind, you're not doing your anybody a service if you're not putting 10 names on the ballot because there are certainly 10 people on the ballot who deserve recognition to be in the Hall of Fame, you know, whether other people like it or not, as you say. It's a, it's a personal choice that any vote is. You know, people have their own reason for why they do things and why they don't. You know, to me, um, you know, what, what, it's a difficult, more difficult choice of who do you make the last selections? You know, this year was one of the rare years where, you know, I had eight pretty much firm and two empty spots. And last year, uh, and in the last two years, I think I had one spot. And I even went on Facebook and Twitter as I was filling out my ballot a couple of years ago, and I said, okay, I've got nine spots. I've got one left. I'm opening it up to everybody out there, all my followers. Instead of chastising me afterwards for who I didn't put on the ballot, tell me now who I should use that last spot for. And so, you know, I took a lot of, uh, you know, input on it. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, uh, it, it came down to, um, you know, a, a, you know, a couple of a couple of different people, and you know, I wound up taking the the people who the guy who I had the most requests from, and put and using that on the ballot, and, you know, and I I didn't think it was a bad idea, and then you know the 
two years ago, or that might've been three years ago, two years ago, when Roy Holiday was on the ballot, you know, you looked at his numbers and you looked at Schilling's numbers. And even though I hate Schilling's politics and I hate what he's become, you know, you, there's only one instruction that they give you on this ballot about how to vote. And it's the so-called character and integrity clause. And it tells you pretty specifically that you should vote on you know, his sportsmanship, integrity, what he did on the field, for the clubs on which, or for the teams on which he's played. You know, not whether, you know, he's a political right winger after his career, not, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have voted for Mariano Rivera either because he's a Trumper, if, that, if, if that's the, you know, the criteria for it. And I never thought it was fair to keep McGuire off the ballot because he went to a steroid hearing on Capitol Hill and said he didn't want to talk about the past, he only wanted to talk about the future. Or Palmiero shaking his finger at a congressman, you know, uh, saying he never did steroids, or Sammy feigning that he didn't speak English. You know, it's like those are not my criteria. Other people do, but it's not an ethical interpretation of what the Hall of Fame tells you. So, you know, Schilling has always been a difficult choice. Every year he's a difficult choice. You know, and every year, at some years I've taken him off, and I've even chatted with him about it. I had some conversations with him about it online uh, the first year or two he was on. I think it might have been even the first year or second year when, you know, he complained to a radio station in Boston that he didn't make the Hall of Fame because the liberal baseball writers voting for the Hall of Fame didn't vote him in. And I've known Schilling his whole career. So I texted him and I go, Kurt, I'm a liberal baseball writer and you were on my ballot. And, you know, we went back and forth for a while. And I asked him, you know, why would you want to alienate half the people who are voting for you by going out publicly with the views you're taking? And he said, well, I have my opinion. I can say whatever I want. And I go, well, I have my vote and I can vote for whoever I want to. You know, it goes both ways. And then he got worse and I left him off the ballot. So, I mean, between voting for Pedro, who had similar numbers to him too, but didn't have uh, you know, the, the postseason numbers that Schilling has, you know, I put Schilling on that ballot with Pedro, then I took him off. Then when I voted for Halliday, and with, you know, the way Halliday destroyed his own life, you know, you, 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 you can't make a, a decision on, based on that and not put him in the Hall of Fame or put him in the Hall of Fame. So I figured... Halliday's numbers and Schilling's numbers are pretty close. But again, even Halliday, as good as he was in the postseason, he pitched a no-hitter in the postseason. He didn't have 10 wins in the World Series and the playoffs the way Schilling did. Schilling was just dominant. So I put him back on the ballot. So lo and behold, I write a column about it, and I explain it, why Schilling's been on and off my ballot. I get another note on Facebook from Schilling ripping me apart, you know, for what I wrote in the column. I go. See, this is your problem, Kurt. You're chastising me about me just explaining why I didn't vote for you, but I voted for you, and you're, and you're getting on my back. And then his wife got involved, and, you know, she apologized, and you got to understand, this is a very t- tough time of year for us. And I go, well, because she said, I don't even know whether or not, if he does get in, whether eventually we're even going to be able to enjoy it. And I said, You'll enjoy it, Chanda. Everybody I know has never gotten into the Hall of Fame. It's just all the stuff that led up to not getting in just washes away. So hopefully you'll get in. And so, you know, Schilling's on the, on the, he's on the bubble. I don't think he's going to get in. If you look at the public votes right now, there's about, a, you know, 50 of them in. He's about little, he's been fluctuating between 69 and 70%. He got 70 on the total vote last year. My experience with this reading the public vote has been that if you're not over the 75% threshold on the public ballots, you're not getting in because the private ballots, people just do what they want on the private ballots and they don't take any responsibility for it. And, I, and he, he will go down and Bonds and Clemens will go down at least five to 10% once all the ballots are cast. And this year we probably will not vote for anybody to get into the Hall of Fame. But, but you know, finishing up, your question, 
it left me with two spots and I took really close relooks at Rollin, Helton, uh, Wagner. You know, uh, that Wagner has been a guy every year. There's some person who people will sell me for not, not voting for. The last year or so, it's been Andrew Jones. I'm not voting for Andrew Jones. He batted 254. Yeah. He had fell off the cliff in his last four or five years of his career. Yeah, he was a tremendous center fielder, had a chance to go into the Hall of Fame, and he let himself fall apart. You know, it's, it, that's his responsibility. He has to take the responsibility for what happened to his career. I'm not voting for him. You know, Wagner, uh, you know, somebody was saying he's the best left-handed reliever ever. Well, you know, John Franco has two more saves. John Franco lasted one, didn't even last a year on our ballot. He, he, he had to have 5% to stay on the ballot. He didn't get 5%. You know, Billy Wagner's numbers, you know, his, even if you go for modern metrics, you know, his war was a 29. Trevor Hoffman's was 28, but Trevor Hoffman had 150 more saves. And he's the all-time leader in the National, in the National League. So I'm not voting for Billy Wagner. So then I looked at Helton and uh, Rollins pretty closely. And if you look at OPS plus, you look at war, you know, they're among the top 15 in their positions of all time. Everybody else, you know, practically were, are in the hall from their positions. And in case of Rollins, third base is a very underrepresented position in the Hall of Fame. There might be five or 10. And, you know, the at first base is, is a tougher go. But, you know, Helton hit over 300. I think we got over the, you know, the threshold with by voting in Larry Walker between, you know, what you bet on the road and bet bet at home, in terms of the course field effect. You know, both had enormous numbers in Colorado. You know, again, Helton's like something like a 345 hitter in cores and a 288 hitter on the road. You know, all his numbers tumble. But you know, I watched his whole career. He was a terrific first baseman doesn't have the home run numbers. Maybe, maybe uh, he, you know, uh, Rollins doesn't either. But I think in the dynamics of the way you vote now in the Hall of Fame, you know, you have to, it, it all just changes. You know, the way you look at starting pitchers, it has to change because the old dynamics of, you know, 300 wins are gone. The, uh, you know, the, probably there's not going to be anybody. The next guy to hit 600 home runs is going to be somebody who probably isn't even born yet. So it, it, we all have to look at things differently to get people into the Hall of Fame. And to me, it's just not an exclusive club. And then you get into the whole dynamic of the steroid people. And, you know, we could talk about that separately. Yeah, I, I 100%. Uh, I put Billy Wagner on, you know, because I did kind of a mock one, of course. I don't have an actual ballot like you do, but I put Wagner on. But I think the downfall with him would be he didn't pitch enough. You know, I think he pitched in less than a 1,000 games, and there just wasn't enough innings there. And I know for um, – I'm, I'm thinking uh, Christopher Russo does this, but he he puts a lot of stock in, in postseason – uh, if you're a bullpen guy, he puts a lot of stock in postseason because that's when you're gonna, you know, that's when you're you're gonna thrive. So he knocked Hoffman for that, which I think is unfair. The guy had a lot of saves. Um, and uh, uh, who else did you say was? Oh, Helton. Yeah, Helton. I think the Coors Field argument is is outdated with with Larry Walker. I think it's harder to play a Coors Field uh, than most people think. I mean, playing 81 games there with that altitude you know, waking up in the morning is harder than, <laughs> harder than not. So I think it's, it's, it's really interesting uh, for sure. I'm interested about Gary Sheffield because Gary Sheffield is for me is one of the most overlooked guys on this ballot and, you know, Barry Bonds and, and Clemens guys that have them on their ballot. Some don't even vote for Sheffield. And I'm amazed by that. I think Sheffield, you know, hit for a good average, never struck out more than hundred times, 500 homers, um, had to have, I mean, I'm, I don't know for sure. I don't have it up, but had to have at least, you know, over 2,500 hits somewhere along the road. Um, the main thing that I think hurts him, and I'm going to ask you about this, is teams. He played for a ton of teams, and you can't specifically tie him with one certain team. And I think that would hurt him. I think that hurt 
Fred McGriff, guys like Fred McGriff, I think that hurts Gary Sheffield in a sense. Because we look at guys like Derek Jeter and Chipper Jones, and we associate them with one team, and it's easier for us to vote them in that way because, you know, Chipper Jones, oh, lifelong, you know, Braves legend. For Gary Sheffield, we can't really do that because he moved around so much, and I feel like it kind of diminishes his his public persona or his public profile as a player. What do you think about that? You know, I think there's a lot of reasons with Sheffield. I think he's a bubble guy, and and his, his admission that, you know, that he did steroids and his, you know, description of it really doesn't help him, you know, with the crowd of people who, you know, would take it out on players for being part of the steroid era. Some who have not never admitted it, like Bonds and Clemens, and uh, being painted with a brush that they did it regardless of what anybody wants to believe, even if you don't have any sort of like evidence of it. Uh, but I think that that that's where Sheffield is. Now Sheffield, you know, uh, he was uh, 1990. I want to say three, 92 with the Padres. He, uh, you know, they they made a deal in spring training to get him from Milwaukee, and he had played himself out of Milwaukee. And I think if you could have any argument with Sheffield is that, you know, because of his personality, he was really a much lower level Dick Allen kind of guy. You know, he had his own drummer. He did his own thing. And, you know, he certainly never missed games, never showed up late at the ballpark like Dick Allen did. But, you know, with but but Sheffield was an acquired taste. But in 92 with the Padres, I mean, I watched this guy. He played, he, uh, you know, almost won the Triple Crown. He won the batting title, which is the only other Padre in history besides Gwyn 8 to win the batting title. And he came right down to the wire with home runs and RBIs and didn't get it. And I've been friends with Barry Bonds forever. And he was back in Pittsburgh at the time. And every year he'd always lobby me for for my MVP vote because every year I was like, chapter chairman of the BBWAA in San Diego, and I had a, an MVP vote. There's only two in each chapter. And uh, so he knew, and he'd all lobby me. And that one year I just said, he was lobbying me, and I said, well, I'm not voting for you this year. I'm going to vote you second. And he goes, well, why are you going to do that? And I go, well, because Sheffield's my guy. I've watched him all year. He almost won the Triple Crown. I've got to vote for the guy that I watched all year on my team. So you've already won like three MVP awards. You're going to win more, but you're going to do it this year without my vote. And I think that was the year like Sheffield finished third, Bonds finished second, and Terry Pendleton won the MVP. So, it, 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 I mean, it, it, at Sheffield that season, that was as good a season as I've ever seen. And then he went to the Marlins. You know, the Padres traded him. He went in their fire sale, and he wound up winning the World Series with the Marlins. He played well for the Yankees. He played well everywhere he played. But saying all that, I never voted for him until last year. And he's now one of the protest votes on my ballot. You know, I've always voted for Bonds and Clemens. I voted at times for McGuire. I had Sosa on the ballot. I stopped voting for Sosa only because the ballot was so crowded. And at 11 12%, I just considered it to be a wasted vote that I'd rather give that vote to somebody else who had a better chance of going in. You know, I knew Sosa wasn't going to be elected. But last year when the White Sox paid Grandel a lot of money as a free agent and the Twins paid a lot of money to Nelson Cruz as a free agent, that sent me over the edge because these are two guys who were suspended for drug use. Mm -hmm. You know, they failed tests. And, and I felt... I've been ambivalent about this anyway, considering that guys like Larusa, Cox, and Torrey got into the Hall of Fame managing these players, a lot of these players, and taking advantage of them for their success. And Bud Selig certainly ran a league, you know, uh, whether you want to say he turned a blind eye, you know, whether he didn't help, he didn't have any help from the Players Association, who didn't even want to deal with this issue. So there's a lot of reasons why why it went rampant in the sport under Selig's uh, administration, but but saying that all these guys got in, and so if if they're in, the owners don't care. They're still giving steroid guys money, 
to play because they think they can play, why am I or anybody else voting for the Hall of Fame throwing all these players under the bus? So I just decided whether you failed the drug test, whether you're suspended, whatever you did, I'm putting you all on my ballot. I started that last year and I continued it this year. And next year, I'm pretty sure I'm going to vote for David Ortiz and A-Rod and put them on the ballot. You know, it'll be Bonds and Clemens last year. It'll be Schilling's last year. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what now this, this domestic violence uh, thing with uh, Omar has. I mean, he, a lot of people don't think he's a Hall of Famer to begin with. It's probably going to affect his candidacy down the road, too. You know, there's going to be a lot of people. We're not going to have a lot of people. If we keep doing this, we're just not going to have a lot of people anymore to vote for the Hall of Fame. So, you know, is Sheffield a Hall of Famer? Probably not. Does he deserve a vote? Yeah. You know, I often say, look, from the, you know, from, 19, from 2014 on, from the last generation of players, we voted 20 of them into the Hall of Fame. If we had voted, you know, or, or 18 of them into the Hall of Fame, we voted, if we had voted in Bonds and Clemens, it would be 2022. There is not even five players from this generation, from, and I would say from 10 to 20 years at this point, who I would say these are, you know, these are a slam dunk Hall of Famers who are going to get in further on down the road. Yeah, Albert Pujols, he's a slam dunker. Cabrera, I'm not sure because his, 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 his career has kind of fallen off the cliff because of injuries. Uh, Pitching-wise, Sabathia just left the game, I think, in five years with 250-some-odd wins, 3,000 strikeouts, and what he meant to the Yankees and other teams. You have to give him a real close look. If you don't vote in guys like Sabathia, we're not going to put another starting pitcher into the Hall of Fame for a whole generation. I mean, we don't, except for the group, in this last bunch that I was talking about, and there were seven of them, we don't vote starting pitchers into the Hall of Fame very often anyway. Maybe we went 11 years from like Nolan Ryan to Burt Blylevin without putting a starting pitcher in the Hall of Fame. The only guy we put in was Eckersley, and he was, uh, had a, he was a hybrid. You know, really his 390 saves made him a Hall of Famer as the first of the one-inning closers. Well, La Russa invented Eckersley, and invented the whole way the bullpen has evolved to. And so, uh, you know, we look at these things. I mean, you know, Robinson Cano with, with two, he might have been a good candidate, but he's kind of iced himself out now with his second, you know, drug uh, suspension. I don't think a lot of people are going to vote for him. Obviously, Trout's in 10 years. If he continues at the trajectory he is, now he's eligible at 10 years. Now you, you, so I, I throw him into the list. But, you know, guys like Granke, Kershaw, uh, you know, Verlander's probably a, a now Miss Hall of Famer. But, you know, the, there are some guys who are, you know, who are around the 10-year mark now who are really, you know, like on the bubble. There's just not a whole lot of people on the ballot coming out of this era that are going to be, you know, guys who are, people are going to vote for for the Hall of Fame unless you change the way you're voting for people to go into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, guys aren't going six innings anymore. Our guys are only going six innings at max. I mean, we're seeing five-inning five inning starters. I think Sabathia got hurt by that at the end of his career uh, with how good the Yankees' bullpen was in those, in those later years in his career. But, yeah, 100%. I think another guy that I was thinking of while you were listing off some of those names of the current players or just, semi, or just re- retired players – Max Scherzer would be an interesting case. I know he's got a few Cy Youngs, but, you know. Yeah, I, didn't, I got to add him in, definitely. Yeah. But Scherzer's got less wins right now than, than Kershaw. Yeah, he's uh, a bit of a late bloomer. I think they've got 174. I mean, mm-hmm. really, it's hard to vote somebody into the Hall of Fame with 174 wins. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. has got over 200. I think, uh, you know, like Verlander's at about 225. You know, whether you devalue the win, whether you, uh, you know, you look at the way the game is played now, you know, with multiple you know, players coming out of the bullpen, and it's harder and harder to – it's really simple. It's a simple equation. The deeper a starter gets into the game, the better chance that starter has of getting his team a win 
and also recording the win for himself. The more play, players that you have, multiple players that come out of the bullpen, the better chance that the game is going to be blown or tied in some way or another. Now, you can also change the win rule, too. It's antiquated for the way the game is played right now. You know, you could give, you could get, drop the five inning, you know, max, minimum rule to qualify for a win if you start. And you can, like, give the official score carte blanche to, to call the win just like you do now, whether, you know, if a pitcher doesn't, doesn't pitch five innings, it's up to the official score. So, I mean, you can do that. Just lift that rule, and then you, you could give wins to – if a pitcher goes out of the game, say he's pitched seven innings and he leaves and it's 1-1, and your team comes back after he's out of the game and wins the game, does that mean because the pitcher wasn't in the game at the time you scored the winning run, that person shouldn't be eligible to get the win? I mean, he got you there to the eighth inning. You scored in the eighth inning. So somebody came in and pitched a third of an inning in the eighth inning, and he gets the win? It's a stupid rule. I've been you know, railing against this for years. But nobody seems to want to listen about it. And you know, until you either change that rule or adapt, you're just going to have this situation. And starting pitchers, less and less starting pitchers, are going to get into the Hall of Fame. You know, and relievers, forget about it. Because the saves devalued, too, at this point. And the way relievers are used, it's so high impact at this point to pitch the ninth inning that a reliever who does it lasts a season or two doing it, and he's some retreaded, you know, setup guy or starter who is a guy like Liam Hendricks, who a couple of years ago was released and the A's picked him up off, you know, off the waiver wire, and basically he was the opener in a wild card loss to the Yankees in the, in the playoffs. And now he's like one of the most coveted closers in the league. You know, where, how long is that going to last? You know, how long did it last for, how long is it going to last for Kirby Yates, you know, who came out of nowhere and had a great year. You know, the guys who, you know, Trevor and Lee Smith and Mariano, who did it for 20, 18, 20 years, they're gone. I mean, I have nobody in baseball. You know, Kimbrell and Chapman are probably the only two who might qualify, and they're not going to be around long enough. They're almost shot. You know, Chapman. Ch Chapman is, is 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 okay, but he he's a diminished quantity at this point, and he's given up the the game-winning home run in the last two playoffs for the Yankees, and then Kimbrell is nothing in comparison to the way he used to be. You know, it's. I don't know when the next time is we'll put a reliever into the Hall of Fame either. Yeah, and, and Kimbrell was – I don't even know if Kimbrell was closing games with the Cubs. I got to I gotta go check that. So, he did, I know he, but he was so bad at it last year that they kept moving him in and out as other people were blowing games. And so they, they'd eventually cycle back around to Kimbrell and he'd blow another game. But he's been terrible for the Cubs since the Cubs signed him. You know, the, the half year or so that he missed as a free agent, when nobody signed him after, and he had a yeah. bad season for the Red Sox in 2018, you know, for whatever reason, not going to spring training and not getting ready for the season really had an adverse effect on him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hasn't worn off yet. Uh, so let's switch to Gwen. I know Tony Gwen got it in 2007. I want to ask you about him. Uh, I went to San Diego last summer. Yeah, summer 2019, and went to Petco for the first time. It's beautiful. And I was awed by how much they, and I actually got this, I don't know if you can see it in the corner here, my, my uh, Gwyn uh, wow. little poster thing. But he, I was so fascinated with how they, they still worshipped him. He's still there. It's, it's almost like he's still, he's still there. Like he's still alive and well the way they honor him. There's the big statue on the hill out there in, in right center field. It, it's really awesome, and it shows how much of a legend he was there. What are your some of your fondest memories of, of covering Tony Gwynn? Yeah, well, look, I, I covered Gwynn from his first hit in the major leagues in 1982 to his last hit in the major leagues in his next to last game in 2001. You know, and, uh, you know, one of the years that I was on the Daily Beat in San Diego for the old Tribune down there, you know, as bad as some, Padre, some of those Padre teams were, and they were bad. 
1987, they, they lost 90, 98 games. But Gwynn batted 370-something three, and led the National League. And you could always count on there would be one month during the season when Gwynn would just get on fire and, and, and 40 to 50% of the time he'd get a base hit. He, he was just a machine to watch. I mean, I always say that the three best hitters I've ever seen in my lifetime are, you know, Mantle growing up in New York, uh, Gwynn covering him, and then Bonds. And so, you know, the, um, you know, the thing about Gwynn is that, you know, we used to joke about it because he played on a terrible knee. He never took care of himself. He was always overweight. He never did drugs. But, you know, no matter what, you, he could hit, you know, slipping out of a bathtub. It, it, it's just the way he was. You know, one of my fun stories is, uh, you know, um, he batted something like 400 against Greg Maddox. You know, and Bonds batted about 260 and hit a bunch of homers. You know, and Gwynn never hit too many homers in his career. I think he hit 150 or something, maybe even less than that. And um, you know, not until later in his career did Ted Williams shame him into turning on the ball a little bit. He he told him you need to use the inside of the plate. You know, just just giving away the inside of the plate to pitchers. And Gwynn, as 38 years old, hit like a career high 18 home runs or you know, somewhere in that neighborhood in 118 RBIs, you know, and he was the oldest player in baseball history to get that many RBIs. And so, you know, it, he could do whatever he wanted to do. You know, in batting practices, he would he would hit, uh, you know, they would have home run derbies among the bigger guys and invariably Gwyn in the, the porch at the old stadium, he would he would hit the ball into the bleachers and win those tournaments. And that, and it, then it, that created a schism among, you know, players on the team saying, you know, why aren't you turning on the ball, knocking in more runs and hitting home runs, and all you're doing is going for these dinky hits between the 5.5 hole, which they named after him, because he would just drill a ball to, to left field. So going back to Maddox, I mean, I asked, they have a, an orientation for the Hall of Fame, uh, which uh, is one of my favorite things to do. The guys get in, they invite them up there in March or April. You know, they, most of them have never really toured the hall. They take them to the hall, through the hall. They take them to, to the archives and bring out things that would be specific to them that they think they'd like. Uh, so they did Cox and Maddox got in in the same year. And so I did that orientation with the two of them. So one of the questions I asked Maddox that day was, you know, we went out to lunch at the Otisaga afterwards, and I said, well, what, who did you rather pitch to, Bonds or Gwynn? And he was like, oh, I'd much rather pitch to Gwynn because he, he wouldn't kill me. If I made a mistake to him, he'd get a base hit, but Bonds would just kill me. So there was a point where when Gwynn came into the league and Maddox, or Maddox came into the league, you know, he, he was throw, throw him a curveball, Gwynn get a base hit. You throw him a fastball, Gwyn would get a base hit. This happened repeatedly. So now Maddox comes, Gwyn comes up to the plate. Maddox is on the mound. Maddox takes the ball, walks halfway to the plate, and screams at Gwyn, I'm just going to throw you a fastball. It doesn't matter. You might as well know what I'm throwing to you because you're going to hit whatever I throw anyway. And he walked back to the mound and threw a fastball, and Gwyn got a base hit. I mean, that's how good a hitter, you know, really Gwynn was. And then there was another story with Bonds, who the two of them loved each other. And, you know, really Bonds later in his career, he won batting titles when they weren't pitching to him much anymore. You know, that one season, if you look at 2004 season with Bonds, when he walked 232 times, 120 intentionally, he actually had more bats. Or, or No, he was actually on base more than he had at bats. Uh, you know, and he won the batting title. I mean, he turned into Gwynn with power later in his career because he just started using the whole field instead of trying to pull the ball through shifts and stuff like that. You know, he just lost his stubbornness. And, you know, uh, so back in the early days when Bonds was still in Pittsburgh, Gwynn had this little bat 
which again, Ted Williams at the 92 All-Star game, looked at his bat, swung it, and said to Tony, handing it back to him, I picked my teeth with these bats. Telling Tony he should he should use a, a longer and heavier bat, which he did convert to in the following season. But that original bat that Gwyn used, you know, Bonds was was on the field when Gwyn was hitting during batting practice when the Padres were playing the Pirates at Old Three River Stadium, and and Bonds was screaming at Gwyn that he should hit more home runs, and Gwyn said, "Well, I can't hit home runs with this little bat." So he goes, "Give me that bat." Bonds grabs the bat. And of course, Bond starts hitting the ball out of the out of the ballpark in, in Three Rivers into every area of, of Three Rivers. Walks out of the batting cage and hands Gwyn the bat. You know, <laughs> I, I always told Gwyn two things, and this is me, right? I'm telling Gwyn, but I always said to him, you know, during the time he was winning the the first four of his batting titles in San Diego, I think it was four and five years. You know, Wade Boggs was doing the same thing in the American League. And I said, used to tell him, if you look at the difference between what Wade Boggs is doing, what you do, Wade Boggs walks 100 times a year. You, you know, you walk, he averaged, I think, 39 walks a year in his career. Wow. He just liked to hack. You know, and it's like, I said, if you walked 100 times a year, you know, you'd hit 400. No, 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 that's not what I'm here for. And I said, and then I did point out Mattingly in New York, all the home runs he used to hit. And I said, if you played in New York with that short porch at Yankee Stadium, they would make you turn on the ball just like they did with Mattingly, and you would hit a lot more home runs because that's what you'd be told to do. Where in San Diego, they just leave you alone. You can do whatever you want to do. So, you know, it would have changed the dynamics of his career. But the thing I learned later, because working on a book with him, was that from the moment he got into the major leagues, and even probably before that, his one thing was he wanted 3,000 hits. And no matter what way he was going to do it, he was going to get the 3,000 hits. And he thought if he swung for power, it would diminish his ability to get the 3,000 hits. I don't know that that would be true. You know, Bonds just about got the 3,000 hits. I think he was like 70-something short. If he had been allowed to finish his career as a DH somewhere, which Major League Baseball iced him out from doing. Yeah. You know, he would have gotten 3,000 hits, 800 home runs, 2,000 RBIs and runs scored. You know, uh, he would have been the greatest statistical player in baseball history. But, uh, you know, Gwynn got his 3,141 hits and wound up hitting 338, which is the highest batting average since Ted Williams retired in 1940, you know, in 1960. So, you know, you can't argue with what he did. Can you imagine if, if a player today said something along those lines that I don't want to sacrifice, I don't want to sacrifice hits for power. Like that, that's so amazing because people would look at you like you're stupid because <laughs> it, it's, it's almost a different mindset with these hitters nowadays. Would Tony Gwynn, would he, would he be successful in today's game? Because I, you know, what would, what would he look, what would, let me, let me put it this way. What would his reaction be if a hitter comes up to him and says, oh, what was my launch angle on that swing? Because we know Tony Gwynn was an unbelievable coach down there in, in San Diego. What, would, what do you think Tony Gwynn's response would be if a hitter, if a hitter said something to him like that? I, I've talked to some of his former teammates about this. You know, Greg Vaughn said that you know, all of these things, you know, launch angle, war, every new – metric tony would have like scoffed at you know he wouldn't have uh, listened to it for one you know for one for one iota you know a minute it's like although you know look tony was the first guy to use video mm -hmm. i mean he used to carry uh you know a a, a, a video a tape machine with him on the road plug it into his hotel machine tape the game while he was at the ballpark and then he'd come home and he'd walk back to the hotel you know, order some beer and pizza and watch and watch himself and dissect what he was doing. And everybody, they called him Captain Video back in that era. And everybody thought he was crazy, you know, and that just became the norm in the game. So, I mean, he might've adapted some of these things too, to what he was doing, but, you know, things like, 
like steroids and uh, greenies. I mean, greenies were rife in the 1984 era clubhouse of the Padres, even into, and then steroids later on the 1998 team that went to the World Series. And so, you know, he, he once told me that he wasn't against using steroids, but he just didn't think it was the right thing for him to use for the type of game he played. He said it wouldn't have done him any good. And as far as, you know, greenies were concerned, amphetamines, you know, he always resisted, resist, resisted that. And then he told me the story that, you know, he was lagging one year and it was later in his career. His knees were bothering him. So somebody, one of his teammates, you know, uh, got him to take one. And he said he felt so bad and so hyper during the game that, you know, he just said, I'm never doing this again. So, you know, he had his opportunities. He thought these things through. I mean, Tony's drug of choice was, you know, he drank like 12 mammoth sugar-filled Cokes and diet sodas every day. Or sodas, not diet, but sodas every day. And it gave him high blood pressure, diabetes, put on weight. You know, uh, he chewed tobacco from the days he was in college. And all of that, I think, wound up killing him. He would have been better off just using amphetamine. You know, I, I remember saying that to Bud Selig once, and Selig looked at me like he was crazy, like I was crazy. But I mean, he killed himself in his dietary habits and, and how, you know, how he approached the game. So, you know, would he have made, made adjustments with this? You know, he would have listened to it, but much like Gary Votto is, I mean, like Joey Votto is right now, you know, where people have assailed him for the way, you know, he gets on base, doesn't tailor for power. You know, you can't, you, I've watched Votto. You can't shift against Joey Votto because he's one of the few guys who'll put the ball where you leave him a hole. And a single is just fine with him. I mean, you could not shift on Tony Quinn. I mean, if you left him a hole, whatever side of it you left it on, he'd put it in that hole every time, you know? And it's like, okay, if you felt that it's a victory to hold somebody to a single and not an extra base hit. And so that's where launch angle comes in. You want to get the ball over the infield. You want to put it in the gap. You want to double because a single is just not good enough, but a walk is just fine. I, I don't understand really the whole mindset of, you know, how, uh, you know, hitting coaches and, you know, the analytic guys, you know, just face the whole system in baseball these days. I mean, it makes it very, you know, doesn't, it takes away the entertainment value of the game. It takes away a lot of the variables of the game. And interestingly enough, uh, on the, these conference calls with the managers, a lot of them were asked whether or not they would now you know, go, you know, you know, make the shift illegal. And most of them said, now, yes. You know, that basically you're just making a rule that you have to play two people on one, on each side of the infield. And yeah, they can, they can hedge towards second base. They can play as far out as deep as they want on the infield dirt, but they can't go outside the infield dirt and, you know, just normalize it again because you don't have enough hitters in baseball like a Gwyn or a Votto who can put the ball where there's a hole. People think that's easy and it's not. And people and hitters are not taught to do this. And so they can't adjust to the hit, to the hit, to, to the, um, to hit in the, in the, against the shift. So I, I think we're going to have that. I wouldn't be surprised in, the, in, in, in this next collective bargaining agreement. That's one of the things everybody agrees with that it's time to limit the shift. You know, I know that Tony Clark, the executive director of the Players Association, we've talked a lot about this and he's totally against the shift. Yeah, exactly. I think um, the shift you're taught to, I know left-handed batters or at least the ones that I've been around or talked to, they're taught to hit the ball through the shift. And <laughs> it's it, when there's two guys there, it's just not, you know, the odds aren't in your favor at all. So it's, it's a really interesting thing. So we're going to end it on – oh, go ahead. They're really good at, you know, at devising infields. If you're really good at it, you know, using your flow sheets, 
you know, you can put a guy exactly where you're, where they have a tendency to hit the ball almost, you know, 95% of the time. So if you can't put somebody there, then there, then it just goes to reason that there's going to be more base hits. Yeah, and one thing that I've noticed is that, you know, I, I watch, you know, the Giants is, are kind of the team that I, that I, uh, that I watch. Johnny Cueto was pitching, and, and there's a left-handed hitter up. I can't I, – I don't remember who it was. But Evan Longoria, the third baseman, was out towards, you know, second base, and uh, whoever was playing second was in, in shallow right field. And the shortstop, Brandon Crawford, was up the middle. And Cueto's pitching the left-handed batter away. You know, it's fastball away, change up, low and away. You know, and I'm like, what's going on? Nobody, you know, is is everybody on the same page? Because, <laughs> you know, you're supposed to pitch the guy in. You know, you want the guy to hit a rollover ground ball to the right side, and they're pitching him away where he could, you know, hit a line drive to left field where the third baseman was. And it's it's contradicting in some sense. Well, yeah, you have to you have to pitch to the shift too, and if you don't pitch to the shift, it's not going to work. Yeah, and that's I think that's why it doesn't work a lot of the time. So it's a really interesting thing, and, and we'll see what happens with those conversations. So I have a few things here to end this on. Um, of course, four rapid-fire questions for you, um, starting with this one. Besides Gwen, who is your favorite baseball personality to cover? Oh, there's no question. You know, as much as I like Barry, Trevor Hoffman was my favorite personal, you know, uh, person to cover i mean not only you know was he he was a great family man a great player a great friend uh he was a uh he stood out to me in every way that a player could stand out throughout his entire career and into his post career i mean the best story i could give you about hoffman is that you know when he was in his after his last year with the brewers and he was toying around with trying to play for the Diamondbacks of the Padres again. You know, we went out for lunch around uh, Christmas time. And, you know, he said if he didn't sign with either of those teams, that would be it. He's not going anywhere else. He's had his couple of years in Milwaukee. He's not doing that again. So I said, well, is that something I should write? And he said, well, give me, give me a week or two before I figure it out. I'll give you a call and, and, and uh, I'll let you know. So, you know, I dropped it and people say things like that all the time. But two weeks later, I get a call from Trevor and he says, look, I'm going to announce tomorrow that, that I'm leaving the Brewers and I'm going back to the Padres, to the minor, to their front office and coaching staff to figure some things out. So I want you to write it. And, uh, you know, I don't want it to leak out of San Diego, Milwaukee first. That's the kind of person Trevor Hoffman is. Next one here is most memorable game you've attended, and uh, this this is picking from uh, a big bowl of candy. So so go for it. <laughs> well, still, you know, the top game I've ever covered is uh, and been to was the Bucky Dent game in Fenway Park in 1978. I mean, being having grown up in New York, I'm I'm still a Yankee fan. You know, I'm able to separate that out from what I do. But, you know, that's the, you know, that, that I followed the last two weeks of the pennant race that year. It was in, early in my career. Uh, I, I was covering the game for, for a paper in, in California. I had a seat in the old press box at Fenway in the first row, hanging right over home plate. Uh, you know, I still watch that game. Uh, in fact, I didn't watch too many replays of games during the COVID shutdown, because I just don't do things like that. But I did watch the last three innings of the Bucky Dent game again from the time Guidry started losing it in the bottom of the seventh inning. After I said, first Dent hits the home run, then Guidry starts to lose it in the bottom of the eighth. They replace him with Gossage in the bottom, of, I mean, in the bottom of the seventh. They replace him with Gossage in the bottom of the seventh. Gossage pick, pitches out of the jam. Now it goes to the top of the eighth. Reggie hits a home run, mammoth home run to center field. Five to two. He, he comes in. It's the two-year period with George Steinbrenner that he was so tumultuous. He basically then uh, high-fives Steinbrenner behind the dugout. And now the eighth inning and the ninth inning, you know, Gossage, I joke with Gossage about this. 
you know, he had to save the game for himself. And so he saved it three times, once for Guidry and twice for himself. The Red Sox had the tying runs on base in both the eighth and the ninth inning, and he pitched out of it. And I was still watching the last three innings of it, knowing what was going to happen, and I still got nervous. My number two is the last game of the 2016 World Series between the Cubs and the uh, and the Indians, you know, and I, I and I still don't know how the Cubs got out of that one. Yeah, that that's the Rajay Davis um, game tying home run there against Aroldis Chapman and the Zobristelvel. That was a great game. That was one of the best that I've seen as well. Two more here for you. Yes or no? Alex Rodriguez will be a Major League Baseball owner within the next 10 years. I know you wrote about this. No. No. Okay, there we go. And final question for you. This is kind of a wild card one. What did Barry Bloom have for breakfast this morning? Barry Bloom had a bowl of oatmeal with nuts, blueberries, and bananas, and a slice of challah with – with uh, cream cheese and jelly on it and a cup of coffee. Excellent. Barry, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, This was a lot of fun uh, and enjoy your holiday season. You too. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure and you you did a great job. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. I appreciate it. You guys can follow Barry on Twitter at Boomski, B-O-O-M-S-K-I-E, A plus by the way for the handle. Uh, And you guys can follow RizzoCast uh, on Twitter at RizzoCast, R-I-Z-Z-O-C-A-S-T. Thank you guys for watching. Thank you guys for listening. Subscribe, do all those fun things, like, and have an unbelievable day. Stay safe and enjoy your holiday season.